This morning's text is from Genesis 4. We're going to be looking at verses 17. Let's all get stable here. Verses 17 through 26. Uh, It's going to be on the screen above us. And for those of you at home, uh, if you do have a Bible with you on your uh, some sort of device, um, let's, let's see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Verse 17 says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he had built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, without your spirit speaking in and through me to all of us, um, Lord, I'm just an empty gong. Father, I pray that you would move through me to our hearts and ears and minds that uh, I would heed your word this morning as much as all those who are listening. Father, we pray that in a text like this where it seems like there is very little hope in the midst of much darkness, Father, that we would be a people characterized by hope in your promises, that our times would not dictate your goodness and your promises, but that your goodness and promises would dictate our current circumstances. So Jesus, give us grace, give us mercy. Holy Spirit, come and help us to uh, hear what it is that you would have us to take away. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Frederick Douglass is one of the world's most well-known abolitionists. He was a brilliant writer, a brilliant thinker. He affected two continents uh, to fight back against slavery. He championed women's rights, and he paved the way for uh, what we would see in America for civil rights. He is a, uh, he is a, he's a personal hero of mine, and he is a uh, a, a wonderful person that we have in the life, life of American history. But Douglas's accomplishments uh, were birthed out of tremendous pain and suffering and horror. Douglas was born a slave. He was separated from his mother at birth. He was separated from all of his family members. But somehow in the midst of all this, he taught himself how to read, how to write, 
And during this time, uh, slaveholders would refuse to teach slaves how to read and write because they knew that education would lead to an uprising. But Douglas here stands out as this beacon of hope, so much so that he and his friends gathered together to make a plan of escape. And during this time, they had all their provisions for months lined up. And when the night finally came to leave, they were busted. They were betrayed by one of their friends for some extra food. Douglas and his friends were all separated. They were beaten. Douglas, being the ringleader, was sent off uh, to this very infamous, brutal slaveholder who was known to, to break Uh, rebellious slaves. He would send them there to be tortured for over a year, physically and mentally, so much so that Douglas's hope was almost gone. This is where we find ourselves in our text this morning. As we're reading through this, it seems incredibly hopeless. Sin is growing on earth Cain has killed Abel, and now Cain's children are following in, the, in their father's footstep. Sin is growing. Sin is multiplying into greater degrees. This scene seems incredibly hopeless. So the question that we're all faced with is, how do we know when the sin of Cain starts to creep in our own hearts? How do we know when we start to resemble Cain We're gonna answer this question in three ways. First is how we view God's gifts. Second is how we view God's people. And then third is how we view God's grace. And all three of those points can be found in your order of worship this morning. And I do think we have all that posted online as well. So let's turn to verses 17 through 22. Look with me there. It's here where we uh, learn how the sin of Cain creeps in our hearts through the way that we view God's gifts. You'll notice in verse 17, Cain was exiled from God after he killed Abel, and part of his punishment was to live as a nomad on the land. He would never have a place to sit and dwell and build a family. Cain goes on to have another child. His name was Enoch. And names are very important, particularly in the Old Testament. Enoch uh, Enoch means dedication, all right? So, Let's start to put this piece together. In direct opposition to God's punishment to Cain, Cain settles down, he builds a city, and names it after his own son, not after God. This is complete rebellion. This is a smack in the face to God and everything that God has done for Cain. And you would think that Cain's children, seeing this behavior, would say, I don't want to be like that man. You would think that, right? Well, they do not. Saying goes, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and these apples grow just as rotten as their father. Notice from verses 18 through 22, we see the line of Cain growing. So this is a physical line, but there's also a spiritual line. They are part of the spiritual line of Satan. And they're growing not only in number, but in ingenuity. And what should we take away from this? There's many things, but primarily, 
What we're seeing is a society and culture growing. This is really the first society we have in the Bible, but this isn't a society and a culture of life, but this is a culture of death. This is a culture of rebellion to God. Look at verse 20. We see Cain's descendants, which are primarily connected to Satan, they grow in their ability to farm, to build homes, to care for animals. Verse 21, we see musicians and artists born. In verse 22, we see technology growing and their ability to make instruments out of metal to improve their lives. And this begs the question then, since these descendants are from Cain and the spiritual line of Satan, are these societal and cultural things that they're developing, are these things sinful? The answer is no. What they're building is not sinful. What they're doing is actually creating and cultivating the earth the way God had called Adam and Eve back to do in Genesis 1. They were subduing and ruling the earth and multiplying the image bearers of God all over the earth. They were doing a wonderful thing, but there is one key element missing from verses 17 through 22. You know what that is? And all of the mention of how society was growing, technology was advancing, and all these children that were born, there's not one mention of God. And all of this, there is no mention of God, and this is the heart of Cain and the core of sin that comes from the spiritual line of Satan. This is a community of people who were all using their personal God-given gifts to cultivate God's given creation to build a culture and community for themselves with no care for God whatsoever. This is the heart of pride. This is the heart of selfishness. And this is the bedrock and the foundation of a culture of rebellion and death. Now, don't answer out loud, but I got an experiment that I'd like to do with all of us here. All right. Imagine you can have the superpower between flying or going invisible. Which one would you pick? Don't answer out loud. All right. Now, the funny thing is, most people know exactly which one they would choose, like they've been thinking about this a lot. And most people know exactly what they're going to do with that gift as soon as they get it. Well, the funny thing is, uh, during an episode of This American Life, they went around and asked that question to, to dozens of people. And what they found out is that people responded immediately. They knew exactly what they would do with their gifts. And what's interesting is that not a single person that chose these gifts wanted to use their gift for someone else. Largely, it was to avoid pain or to commit some sort of nefarious activity. For people who wanted to be invisible, one lady said, well, I'd like to be invisible so I can steal cashmere sweaters. Another person wanted to steal other things. A guy was very honest. He was like, I'd love to fly, and to be honest, I wouldn't use it to go and save other people. Particularly if a house was on fire, no way would I fly in that house because I could get burned. 
That's shocking honesty, right? But what that highlights for us is that we are hardwired by sin to use the superpowers or spiritual gifts God has given all of us for our own glory instead of other people's good and God's glory. This is the culture of rebellion and death that we saw with Cain that's still very, very present today. It's still very much alive and active in church. We're not immune to its effects either. You see, every time you use the gifts that God has given you, and you are immediately using those gifts for the good of other people and for God's glory, if that is not constantly on the forefront of your mind, which guess what, if you're like me, it's not, okay? If you're doing that, then what's happening is the sin of Cain can creep more and more into your hearts. We're not immune to this. And the question that we need to ask is do you actually see the gifts God has given you to cultivate a culture of life for the good of other people and God's glory? Or are you using your gifts to build a little mini kingdom around you all for your personal glory? Are you being the best attorney, the best plumber, the best barber, the best electrician, the best mother, the, uh, the best medical care worker? Are you doing all these things for the sole purpose of making someone else's life better and for God to receive glory? Or are you working day in and day out to build a mini kingdom where everything and everyone and all of your gifts are to be hoarded and stewarded for your own glory. The one seeking to use their gifts for themselves reveals the line of Cain that exists and the other is of the Lord, but both lines are drastically affected by this sin because all of us are descendants of the same parents in Adam and Eve. And if we are to learn anything from Cain is that you cannot be in rebellion to God and have fellowship with God at the same time. Cain's rebellion had him sent away. Adam's and Eve's rebellion had them sent away from God. You cannot live in rebellion and have relationship with God at the same time. Rebellion to God leaves no room for relationship with God. You can't have it both ways. So we've seen how the sin of Cain creeps into our hearts by the way we view God's gifts. Now we can turn our attention to how the sin of Cain creeps into our hearts by the way we view God's people. And we see that in verses 23 and 24. And it's in this uh, small section where we find the second recorded poem in the Bible. The first one was back in Genesis 2.23 where Adam sees Eve for the first time and he is so excited by her beauty that he breaks out into this beautiful love song. And we've gone from that beautiful love song to a song of death, to a song of vengeance. And what's interesting to note about Lamech's song here is that Lamech is the seventh 
generation descended from Adam. You might be saying, why in the world is that interesting? Well, biblically, the number seven carries a lot of symbolism to it. Seven symbolically represents completeness. So as an original reader would have been reading this, when you see Lamech, the seventh descended from Adam, you would expect to encounter some heinous evil. And that's exactly what we find to be true here. Because notice his audience. Who is Lamech singing to? His wives, plural. We're seeing right here the birth of this culture of rebellion and death grow as the sin of polygamy is an assault against God's plan for the advancement of the human race. You see, God intended for human beings to flourish through a marriage between one man and one woman for life, but Lamech is taking a page out of Cain's book by completely disregarding God's law for two wives instead of one. And it gets worse. It gets even worse. Not only is Lamech oppressing women and rebelling against God by taking multiple wives, he goes on to serenade his wives with a song of murder and vengeance. You'll never find that track on an Old Boys to Men album. I guarantee that. Notice the lyrics. Look at the lyrics in this very short poem. You have two forms of sin painting this picture of barbaric evil. First, Lamech moves from killing an older man to killing a younger man. And in the text that the original Old Testament was written in Hebrew, when you translate that phrase, it means a young boy. At best, this young boy was a preteen. Okay, He murdered a man for giving him a bruise, and he killed this child for scratching him. Then what do we see? We see murder, then we see vengeance. Vengeance from seven to 77, uh, 77 fold. What's Lamech's point? What's his point here? It's that there is no one of any age that's off limits to Lamech's murderous activities. No one is safe from Lamech. Not only that, but if anyone would even look at him the wrong way, there is no one who will be spared Lamech's wrath and vengeance. What we see here is exploiting the vulnerable. What we see here with Lamech is violence, oppression, vengeance. Only the strong survive. What are we to take away from this? This changes our view of sin. You see, sin doesn't just plateau over time. Sin doesn't just, just kind of bad, and then uh, it'll, it'll, it'll stop about right here. Sin only goes from bad to worse. There is no plateauing of sin. Destruction of marriage oppression, violence, murder. This is the line of Canaan, the serpent, working itself out in society. And this line 
views people as nothing more than objects for personal satisfaction because this is a culture of death. Russian novelist Vladimir, let me pronounce this right, Nabokov. Nabokov, he was vacationing in Utah and during this vacation, he does what all of us do. He was trying to increase his collection of butterflies and moths. It's how we spend our free time on vacation. So as he was uh, collecting butterflies and moths, uh, it was about dusk, and he hears in the distance a very painful uh, groaning off in the distance. It piques his curiosity, and he uh, you can just see him with his little net on his shoulder, and he's going and looking around, and he sees a person way off in the distance moaning and groaning, and he just goes back home. He tells his friend, he was like, yeah, I saw uh, someone uh, groaning. I don't know what happened. His friend replies, he's like, hey, did you go check on him? And Nabokov replied, no, I was too busy catching butterflies. Well, what happened Next, the next day they go and they find the body of an elderly prospector who had died. And because of this scene, that gulch was renamed Dead Man's Gulch in Nabokov's honor. Now that's a terribly sad story and it's really easy for us to hear that story and sit back and be like, how could he just turn his back on someone hurting? How could he do that? But y'all, we can be so busy with our to-do lists. We can be so busy checking things off of our schedule that we can be oblivious to other people's needs. And we can be oblivious to other people dying around us physically and even more importantly, spiritually. We can be completely numb to that. And this reminds us to think back of the lineage from Cain to Lamech. They were industrious. They were innovators. They were culture creators, but they never passed down the love and worship of God to the next generation. They never gave God glory for everything that he had done for them. And this trickled down to create the next generation of people who didn't know God. Therefore, their sin grew worse and worse. This should cause us to pause. It should cause us to ask ourselves, how are we looking up from our own pursuits and schedules to notice the hurting around us? This makes us ask, are we sharing our faith with the next generation? Even if you don't have kids, somebody will benefit from what you know about Jesus and God's grace. We care about, as a church, passing our faith down to the next generation. We put such a high priority in that. We have children's ministry directors. We have uh, uh, youth directors. We care about passing this faith on. It causes us to sit and ask, are our neighbors, coworkers, teammates, roommates, are they viewed by us as people created in the image of God, worthy of dignity, respect, and care? 
Are people just stepping stones so we can live our best life now? See, these questions, they're so heart exfoliating because the sin of Cain creeps in all of our hearts. And without God's supernatural work in our hearts to renew our hearts and minds, we will all perpetuate a culture of death and rebellion where our gifts are only for our benefit and people are only used for our personal exploitation where they're nothing more than objects. If you're like me right now, at this point in our text, feels hopeless, feels really dark, feels really, really heavy with sin right now. But thank God, in the midst of all of this darkness, there is a ray of hope. And how we respond to this hope is vital. So we've seen how we view God's gifts as it relates to the sin of Cain creeping in our hearts. We've seen how we view God's people as it relates to the sin of Cain creeping in our hearts. Now we finally turn to how we view God's grace in verses 25 through 26. It's here in these two short verses in this entire uh, section that we're looking at. Here we see the fallen Eve who has another son and names him not after her own glory as Cain did with Enoch, but after her faith in God's promise all the way back from Genesis 3.15. She names this son Seth, and this son means the appointed one or the appointed child, clinging to God's promise that one day someone would come from her line that would stomp on the head of Satan, that would bring life into this dark world. Seth, we see in our text, would go on and he would have Enosh, and Enosh and this line of people we see would gather together and worship the Lord. And when you see L-O-R-D, Lord in all caps, that's God's covenant family name to his people. Uh, in the past, some have called it Jehovah. Uh, more modern day uh, translations, uh, you'll see the name Yahweh. This was God's covenant family name to his people. Hope is finally here. There's real hope. Notice in this brief genealogy, though, that there's no mention of Eve's descendants being industrious or entrepreneurial whatsoever. But what we're seeing is with the spiritual line of Eve, that this line of people, this people who are of the line of faith and trust in God, they aren't defined by accomplishments. They aren't defined by their gifts. They're defined by their worship of God. It's assumed in this text that they were following God's cultural mandate and they were using these gifts for God's glory and the betterment of the culture that they were living in. They were building a culture of life here in the midst of a growing culture of death and rebellion. And you'll notice that the major difference between Eve's line and Cain's line is this. Eve's line trusted in God's promise that a savior would come. And we learn from Luke 3.38 that this son from 
Adam to Seth, all the way down through the line, that that Savior was Jesus. It was Jesus who came and reversed all of this culture of rebellion and death from Cain and Satan to bring heaven down to earth to renew all things by creating a culture of life and mercy and love. And for all the things we can say about Jesus, we've got one that really sticks out to us here. Notice there's a huge difference between Jesus and Lamech because earlier we saw Lamech uh, promising revenge 77-fold, no mercy or forgiveness. But what does Jesus teach about mercy and forgiveness? In Matthew 18, Peter come and uh, tells Jesus like, hey, if my friend or a brother wrongs me, should I forgive him? Should I forgive this wrong seven times? Jesus says, you're to forgive him 77 times. You see, what a major difference we have between these two spiritual lines. One promotes death, vengeance, and violence, and the other, ultimately in Christ, promotes life, mercy, faith, and forgiveness. Jesus is the polar opposite of all the sin that we see in our text. We see throughout the Gospels, we see throughout the New Testament, Jesus constantly used his gifts to bring relief and freedom to other people. There's story after story of Jesus healing and exercising people and bringing hope, bringing the dead back to life. He used his gifts for the betterment of other people perfectly. Not only that, but he saw humans created in the image of God and loved God's people so much that he would hang out with people that most of the church would dare be seen around. His love for God's people was radical and perfect. Not only that, but he loved God's people so much that he would lay his perfect, sinless life down to turn sinners and to saints. And guess what? We're called to do the exact same thing. We are to follow Jesus' mandate for how he lived his life. And we see that in Romans 12:1, where the apostle Paul tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice based on what Christ has done for us. And this means that we follow Christ's pattern and using our gifts to build other people up and to bring God glory. This also means that we view the culture that we lived in as not some uh, nameless thing called culture, but a group of people made in the image of God that are desperate for good news in a hopeless society. This is not an us versus them. It is let us live alongside people that don't know about Jesus and use every means that God has given me to live beside them in peace and charity and love and to share with them the hope that we have. Because if you look around, it could be said that we are living in some tough times. We of all people have reason for hope. We of all people have a reason to bring others that hope 
as well. And if we're honest, that sounds great, but it's really hard to practice. You know why? Because we're all still burdened by sin. For all of us who profess faith in Jesus and trust in his promises, we are still burdened right now by sin. And that sin can creep up in our hearts and selfishness can take over. We can forget with really trying people in our lives that they're made in the image of God. And we will give in to sin. We will fall. But what the resurrection of Jesus promises us is that when we fall, we can come to him and repent and turn to Christ. We can find forgiveness and find that we've been covered by the blood of Jesus. And his death reveals for us the depths of God's love for us. And when we experience this freedom of forgiveness, then we're free to live our lives not for ourselves, but for Jesus's glory and fame. And what happens is in the middle of dark and trying times that we are a people that will stand out like a light on a hill, showing people where we have hope and it's found in the character and the promises of our living God. What's so interesting is that this covering and this freedom was the same exact hope that Frederick Douglass had. After being beaten, after being tortured, he had, a, he had a ray of hope. He trusted in God. And after surviving this uh, uh, terrible time, a loving friend would come into Douglass's life. And this person brought a sailor's uniform and a new ID card that showed that Frederick was not a slave, but he was that a sailor. And these papers showed that Douglas was actually a free man. So what happened is Douglas uh, dons this uniform. He takes these papers and very nervously boards a train in Maryland for New York. And if anybody would have read that paper closely, they would have saw that it wasn't him. But by God's grace, he was able to escape to New York to be a free man and through his freedom, use that as an opportunity to push back against the evil of slavery. He was able to use his freedom to fight back against evil by speaking into it with truth and love. And what I want you to notice is think about the faith that Douglas had. He trusted in God and he trusted his entire life and death to being covered and through the identity of another man, what did Jesus do for us in our sin and our guilt and shame? By faith alone, we learn that Jesus covers us in robes of righteousness. Though our sins are a scarlet, he makes us white as snow. And not only do we have his covering, but we have a new identity that no longer says that you are a sinner, but that you are a blood-bought child of God. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer a slave to fear. You are no longer your past. 
but you have a new identity in Christ. And your new commission is to use your freedom to push back evil by being the best neighbor, coworker, parent that you can possibly be. By sharing the hope of Christ with people who need it. We can look distracted on the outside, but I guarantee you for those who don't know Christ around you, they need the hope that you have. And they're gonna hear it best from a good friend. Because of our freedom that's been purchased by Christ's blood, let's live out of that freedom and use our gifts to build up those around us for God's glory. Let's look at those around us as people created in the image of God, worthy of dignity that we can build up and care for. And let us respond to God's beautiful grace and hope by trusting in him with our life and our death. Knowing that we have hope in the midst of potentially really dark times because Jesus says, that he's building his church with living stones, that's every one of us that profess his name, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, we are debtors of grace, and because we've been forgiven of much, forgiven of much, that we can forgive much. Because we have been loved by you, when we were at our worst, we can love people who most of us would find very hard to be around if we're honest. Lord, you call us to get outside of ourselves with our gifts, with what you've blessed us with, and to reach the least of these in this world. And time is short, Lord, and you said that in our weakness, there we will find strength. And Lord, I pray that we would realize that we're a, neat, a weak people in need of a strong Savior to do a mighty work in us. Father, use us to build your church. Build us up today so that we can pour out to other people. Father, bless us as we continue to worship, as we give you all praise and glory that you deserve. Let us sing for those in our midst who aren't even able to sing because they might be carrying a weight so heavy that they may not be able to sing without tears. Father, help us to love you and help us to love our neighbors as you have called us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.